The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover the deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine. I also helped to start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. So in this episode, Sarah and I talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act, a major piece of civil rights legislation for Native Americans that is coming under threat. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sherry. So we are recording this in May 2021, and this Indian Child Welfare Act is very much under threat. I did not even know about the existence of this major piece of civil rights legislation for Native Americans. I think you might have said that it's, you know, it's kind of like Brown v. Board of Education in the Native American community. And I didn't know about this till about maybe two or three years ago when a federal judge in Texas struck down the Indian Child Welfare Act as unconstitutional in, I think, 2018. And this came as a really as a shock to Native American rights advocates. So I'm wondering, Sarah, if we could just start by you saying a little bit about what is ICWA and why is it so important? Sure. So the Indian Child Welfare Act is a piece of federal legislation that ensures that indigenous children who are facing abuse or neglect, if they're removed from their families, that they would be placed with relatives. If they're not able to be placed with extended relatives, then they would remain with their tribe. If they aren't able to remain with their tribe, then they would then be able to remain with with another Native American family. If there isn't a family that's available, they then could be in the care or even adopted by someone from the dominant culture or any other any other person. The Indian Child Welfare Act is really meant to ensure that Native children stay within the Native context. And so a couple of things about it. Um, the Indian Child Welfare Act, this idea that we would place children within their extended family system is really standard practice now nationwide. It's considered you know, the best practice for all people within the child welfare system. But at the time that this legislation passed, that was not the case. The Indian Child Welfare Act really created reforms to try and keep families together that impacted the entire child welfare system. So another thing about the context is that when this legislation was passed in 1978, Many indigenous children were being removed from their families simply because of poverty. So this idea that poverty was a form of neglect, and if you could place a Native child in a more affluent family, that they would be inherently better off. So this legislation was a challenge to that notion, and this idea that indigenous peoples should be kept together, and indigenous children had the right to remain within their own community and their own culture. The other really important piece of this legislation is that Native American tribes, and so by that I mean federally recognized tribes, would have a seat at the table in negotiating what is 
best for a native child. So that if a child is a tribal member, the tribe would have to be informed about what was going to happen in the placement of that child and would actually have a say. They would have a right to determine what would be best for that child. And this was really important for helping um, tribes to be able to, to retain children within their own community. Uh, so recognizing that tribal structure as having a right in the placement of children. So really, ICWA had a, has a twofold aim. It protects Native American children by keeping them as much as possible within their you know, families or, or tribes or culture. And it also really is respecting the sovereignty of Native American tribes. That's right. And it's a crucial piece of legislation that affirms the sovereignty of Native American tribes. Exactly right. You know, I was, um, I saw this statistic that at, according to a report created by the Senate in 1977, at, at the time that report was written, 25 to 35% of all Native children were living in foster homes away from their families, overwhelmingly in white homes. And you and I have talked about the fact that prior to ICWA, basically what was happening is just almost like the whole boarding school phenomenon was just being repeated in a different way. And, you know, I know that ICWA is very personal to you because of your family's story. And I'm wondering, in particular, your father's story. And I'm wondering, would you be willing to share a little bit of that story? We've talked about it before in some other podcasts, but it feels especially pertinent given that we're talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act right now. Right. And so thank you, Sherry. Yes, I'd be happy to share about that. And I, I guess I want to begin by just saying that the doctrine of discovery in general is thought of often as this sort of remote, historical, antiquated thing. It happened a long time ago. And the opposite is true. It is a system of laws and policies that determine the fate of Indigenous people now, currently in our society today. And I think that child removal has been a very important part of removing Indigenous people permanently from their lands. And so, you know, a way of, of expressing that or explaining that is for me to just share how this has impacted me directly. So, you know, I think I've shared previously that my father was removed from his family at birth, and that was in 1943. And he was raised 300 miles away from his family, from his tribe, from his traditional homeland. And in the place where he was, he wasn't adopted. He was in a, a foster home, actually a boy's home. And he endured in that context, malnutrition, criminal neglect, and consistent abuse. Um, and he was actually forced to work for his keep. So he worked sort of in a, a farm, was an orchard. Um, it was a very you know, difficult um, environment to grow up in. And so I want to be really clear about what the intention of that is, because this was not done just to one person. This was by design, and it happened across the country. This was a process of civilizing what was considered civilizing indigenous kids. It was a process of assimilation. And by assimilation, I want to be really specific what I mean by that. The goal was for these children who were removed to ultimately share the values of the dominant culture. And, and here are the values that, that were meant to be instilled in these Native kids. Individualism, yeah. the American dream, 
an investment in private property or this understanding that, that private property is sacred. Right. And really, in a religious or spiritual sense, an individual sense of God. Right. And so the the values of his people that he was expected to give up are the value of collectivism or mutual dependence, mutual dependence with his community and the life web, um, a sense of the creator present in creation and an obligation to the creator to live in balance and to leave no trace. These were the values of his people that were meant to be removed from him. And in this context where he grew up, my father in his late adolescence developed schizophrenia. And as a result of that, you know, he did not receive the gifts that were sort of promised by the American dream. He didn't end up accumulating wealth and so on in the way that it's promised. You know, those people who are smart and clever and capable can be, you know, affluent. It's the promise, the American dream. And that was not his experience. And um, as his daughter, you know, I grew up in some pretty rough conditions in an urban environment, but I too um, was separated from my father's people. So from my extended family, from my language, from my culture, and and most importantly, from the land of my people, which is to say my birthright. So, So assimilation, this process of assimilation, by removing my father, you know, all the generations are removed. So once again, the purpose of the doctrine of discovery is to remove indigenous peoples from their lands with the intention of settling those lands, taking those lands from them and settling them um, so that ultimately at the end, there will be no indigenous people. Yeah. Um, and so that, and that was a systematic process that, that remains ongoing. Ongoing. The India Child Welfare Act was meant to stop the systemic removal of indigenous peoples from their lands by stopping their removal from their families. So the purpose of assimilation originally is to ensure there would be no indigenous peoples, no indigenous lands. And this is really consistent with the Code of Indian Offenses. And this is something many people don't know about. That was a law that was passed in 1883 that criminalized indigenous culture in the United States. So basically it said if you were practicing your own culture or your religion as an indigenous person, um, that was illegal. There were traditions that were outlawed and rituals outlawed because they were considered heathenish. So this was a practice of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so if you engaged in ceremony expressing spirituality, that was criminal. Hmm. If you practiced traditional medicine, that was criminal. If you participated in marital gift giving, that was criminal. What do you mean by marital gift giving? You mean yeah, I mean participating in the marriage rituals among many indigenous tribes. Oh, where where gifts are given between the families, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, and there were consequences for violation. So if you if you participated in any of these things, you could be incarcerated. You could have food withheld from you. Um, You could be sentenced to hard labor. And you could be forced to forfeit government rations that were guaranteed by treaty. Well, once again, this process of trying to remove indigeneity from Indian country. Mm. And so, you know, it was really, it was illegal to be an Indian. And assimilation under the law was the only legal pathway to survival. Mm. 
So systemic discrimination and segregation and ethnocide have resulted in massive social problems in Native America that continue today. The Indian Child Welfare Act and the Religious Freedom Act, they were both passed in 1978, are civil rights legislation that were meant as a remedy. They're meant to Mm -hmm. remedy that. Hmm. And so the Indian Child Welfare Act was created to prevent the removal of indigenous children from their families and people and communities and their land. Hmm. You've just done such a great job, Sarah, of connecting removing indigenous people from their lands and uh, basically making all lands non-indigenous lands with, you know, Indian Child Welfare Act. And how wonderful that that and this Religious Freedom Act were passed in 1978. But you've told me that ever since ICWA was created, it's basically been under attack. And Mm -hmm. it's under attack now, I think, like never before. I mean, this is going before the Supreme Court and we don't know exactly, we don't, I don't think folks know how it's going to get ruled on, but do you want to talk a little bit about this latest attack on ICWA and how we got to this place? Sure. So in 2018, um, there was a case, um, Brackeen versus Holland. That case was filed in federal court um, by the state of Texas, joined by Indiana and Louisiana. So a federal district court struck down ICWA as unconstitutional. And then in 2019, the Fifth Circuit Appellate Court reversed this decision and upheld ICWA. It was a controversial decision, actually. And so the entire Fifth Circuit Court had a a session where they were all, all 13 judges were going to rule on it, not just uh, a, a subgroup. And together, they determined portions of ICWA are unconstitutional. And so that happened in April of 2021. So just last month, they made that ruling. And so ICWA is threatened right now. And it it looks as though it will be kicked up to the Supreme Court for decision. And so the question is, you know, will ICWA be upheld and kept whole? Or will it be determined um, to be unconstitutional? So, you know, a a bit about the case, um, Bracking versus Holland, There was a foster child, a native foster child that was placed in the care of a white foster family. That family ultimately were able to adopt him. So that is to say that he was not able to be placed, you know, in a native placement and he was adopted by this family. And so, and and that was not challenged. What the case is really about was that the family wanted to adopt their child's sister, um, also a Native child. And in that case, um, the tribe was able to find a, a relative placement for her. And so the struggle has been over whether this family have the right to adopt um, this child. And so, you know, in a nutshell, that's in essence what the case is about. There is this understanding that that sin is located within individual behavior, um, and and perhaps that's not the case. Maybe that's just my read of it and my understanding of how how I grew up in the church and in the way in which I was raised. There's very much this understanding of personal responsibility within the culture of individualism, and my salvation rooted in in a personal decision, and so sort of thinking through sin as being um, 
about individual level behavior. And so I want to challenge that a little bit and think through a different vision, which is um, structural sin, where the systems of a society are sinful and the laws and policies and practices are sinful. And this systemic sin is often invisible to those who benefit from it. The sort of systemic sin is where there are laws in place that jeopardize the most vulnerable systems of laws and policies that are designated or designed to separate indigenous people from their lands are consistent with the societies condemned by the prophet uh, Isaiah and the prophet Amos, where the most vulnerable were used to enrich the wealthy and the powerful. So, you know, I, I think in the context of spirituality or, and I'm thinking about my own faith, it's interesting when, when we focus on individualism as, as sort of the, the way that we think about our obligations to the creator or our Christian identity, what we do is we then just sort of ignore and block out all of these other kinds of systemic issues. And so Christianity can become a cover for dealing with those, if that makes any sense. It's completely consistent with what you, I mean, first of all, it is how I grew up also. And I mean, I grew up Mennonite, which is, you know, tends to be, I think, a sort, somewhat more collectivist or have a more collectivist idea, which is true. But I still grew up with that idea that it was really kind of most, my own individual relationship with God and my own individual sin was really at the forefront. And it's very consistent with what you said about when your father was removed from his culture and to assimilate this so-called process of civilizing. And one of those things that he was civilized to was this individual sense of God. But what you're saying, which I think is so true, is that that very individual sense of God with its attendant individual sense of sin then obscures the systemic sin that is actually behind so much of the suffering in our world. And, you know, it is invisible to those who benefit from it. I just got done telling you, I didn't know about the Indian Child Welfare Act until 2018 when it was struck down by this district court. So I just think this whole individual versus systemic sin is so important for Christians, but really even anybody just systemic structures, practices, laws, policies, you know, you don't have to be Christian to wake up to the existence of those structures and to want to do something about them. Right. So I'm thinking about this scripture from first John chapter three, let's see, I'm thinking chapter verses four through seven. It says here, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And so, you know, this is kind of an awkward text, because I think often, you know, in, in the progressive church, there's this feeling of talking about sin is kind of awkward and we try to avoid that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I want to kind of re, re, you know, reclaim it or, or talk about it in the terms of structural sin. Mm. 
the focus on individual sin is often a focus on sexuality and sexual behavior, but that focus is not really consistent with Jesus' ministry or witness, actually. And so, you know, I just kind of want to re- reclaim this understanding that we as a society are responsible for this structural sin and that the way that we address it is by dismantling it. Address it by dismantling it. So I guess I want to say in terms of ICWA that it's been under attack, not just since 2018, but for decades, the conservative Goldwater Institute alone has challenged ICWA a dozen times since 2014. And so the goal there of this attack on the Indian Child Welfare Act is to erode tribal sovereignty under the law in the name of the state's rights, which argues that the federal government does not have the right to protect indigenous children. So um, basically it's saying, hey, each state needs to make these decisions for themselves. This is federal overreach. And so interestingly, Christian organizations seeking to save indigenous children, you know, often with a feeling of entitlement, also are working together to dismantle ICWA. Mm, yeah. And, and I, I want to say this is also rooted in a, in a historical context. So that whole idea is consistent with the federal program called the Indian Adoption Project, which went on from 1958 to 1967. And it sought to place indigenous children with white families once boarding schools were coming to an end. So boarding schools as institutions were ending. So it was like, okay, we need a new way to remove indigenous kids from their families. And this Indian adoption project was launched. So high rates of poverty were seen as a justification for removing children from their families. And within one generation, The adoptees are no longer Native American, and their own children are assimilated. They're separated from their extended families, language, and land, just as I was. And I think what you're saying, Sarah, is like just like boarding schools were really, I mean, what would you say? The subcontracting for those boarding schools often went to Christian groups, Christian denominations, correct? Yep. I'm not saying, obviously, that Christian organizations were the only group behind that, but that they were very much a part of that effort. And continue to be a part of the effort to dismantle ICWA. Right. So Christian organizations to this day continue to challenge whether or not it's constitutional, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And and we just don't see Christian support on the other side. Mm. Christians holding up and seeking to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so, you know, I want to go back to the to 1978, just as you were saying, Sherry, 25 to 35 percent of all Native children were had been removed from their homes at that time. And of those people that were removed, you know, the majority, vast majority of them were in white homes. The study that was launched by Congress to investigate this said that, you know, up to 95 percent of Native kids were in white homes, those that had been removed. And those removed, like my father, were raised outside the context of what public health experts call protective factors. Protective factors are the factors that insulate youth that are at risk from suicide, from drug abuse, from social problems. 
And those protective factors are things like being in relationship with your kinship groups, um, having access to your own language, culture, and identity. So the removal of children has actually led to profound social problems for the kids that have been removed. So just as sort of a, an imaginary thought experiment here, you know, imagine if Mennonite families who were being persecuted for religious or cultural differences were thought to be unfit, um, that their homes were unfit. Um, imagine losing 25 to 35% of the children of Mennonite children. Hmm. You know, that would be one in four children or one in three children. Wow. Every single family would be impacted. Every family would feel the loss. Wow. And that was the situation for for, um, Native America when the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed. That makes it pretty real because, you know, those of us who are Mennonite, I grew up definitely seeing myself as being in a different culture. I mean, I'm not sure I was as much of a different culture as I thought I was sometimes, but I definitely had this sense of being a people. It's precious to me. And I, I can't imagine what you're just saying, one of every four or one of every three children just being lost to that. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, you know, in, in, you know, on the part of Christian families who have been part of this process, you know, their compassion is moving them to take action. And as people of privilege, these folks are empowered to do this without considering context or the consequences of those actions. So many compassionate families seek to adopt underprivileged children without considering why they're underprivileged or what would have to change to protect vulnerable communities. So this is looking at the structural level as opposed to the individual level. And so, you know, I just wanted to say that collectively we could turn away from this collective sin and choose to do something else. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, Sarah, that we talk a lot about collective or systemic sin in this podcast and in the work we do. And I'm thinking about the fact that they're in a way there where there's also individual virtue and collective or systemic virtue. So, you know, it is sort of an individual virtue when these families want to adopt these children who are very vulnerable. And <laughs> collective virtue, I feel like, would be to say, how do we protect these children as much as possible on this collective level, you know, in our structures and our laws, our policies? And also, why are they vulnerable in the first place? What can we do so that these children are not vulnerable in the first place? Right. I appreciate that. And uh, you're right. And I, and I also want to just say here that I am not in any way criticizing families that adopt Native kids. That's not at all my message, but rather asking for us to think about the damage that's been done that would re- that would make so many Native kids high risk. You know what I mean? That that would right. make Native kids under threat. And so, I think that you know, as we're making individual choices, we also have to be thinking about the collective. And I think, especially as church bodies. You know, where do we stand in these issues and why aren't church bodies working together to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act? Yeah. You know, it's almost as though it's outside the purview 
of people of faith. And I just, I just reject that. It was not outside the purview of people of faith to create boarding schools. They felt okay about doing that. It was not outside the purview of Christian communities to collaborate with the federal government in removing and adopting a bunch of indigenous kids. It's not outside the purview of the church to now turn from that and uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act. Yes. And thank you for also saying that you're not necessarily saying that individual families haven't been motivated by compassion and that you don't understand where that's coming from, but that all of this needs to be looked at within uh, this systemic collective way. And so no. the collective virtue I was referring to earlier would be what you're just saying, the dismantling. So dismantling the laws, policies, and practices that continue to oppress indigenous people. As you're saying, asking why are there so many of these indigenous children who are thought to be removable from their family and what does that do to them when that happens? And just underscoring what you're saying. Thank you. And then upholding the civil rights legislation that was passed as a remedy. Right. You know, I mean, why would we want to undo the remedy? Right. I think one last thing I want to say about this is that in the Brackeen versus Holland case, that's a case about adoption. And so often we have these conversations in a very extreme way. That is to say, um, we're talking about it thinking about, you know, Native kids should have the right to be adopted by white families, when in fact, the vast majority of all children who are in Child Protective Services, regardless of their um, tribal affiliation, the vast majority of them are, are not adopted. They are raised in foster care. Mm. So that is true in the system. And so if the Indian Child Welfare Act is found to be unconstitutional and it's it's struck down, the Native kids who are in the system are not going to grow up with adoptive families. The majority of them are going to grow up in foster care. And so removing those children from their communities and, and putting them in the mainstream system, I don't see how that is a remedy to anything. Yeah, right. Well, I think this is the time in the podcast when we can say that if you want to be involved with dismantling the laws, policies, and practices that continue to impress Indigenous people, and if you want to work with us to help to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act, I mean, it's not like we can directly petition the Supreme Court, but we have been doing things to try to really raise awareness about the importance of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And there are things that you can do to help us help Native communities uphold this act, correct? Well, sure. I mean, the, the, the first thing is just to begin to have a more complex narrative than simply the church wants to strike down ICWA and that's it. You know, I, I don't think that there, I've been talking a little bit in Texas I don't think there is a full understanding of what the issues are in Texas, even though um, the state is the one that is the plaintiff in the case. And when there is discussion about it, it basically says that the Indian Child Welfare Act should be struck down. Mm. And there isn't a lot of complex conversation about, you know, sort of thinking through the whole issue. And certainly, to my knowledge, th there isn't discussion within the church about it. Yeah, right. Other than you raising it, Sarah, I'm not sure that I've ever seen it come up. 
And like me, I mean, like I said, I first heard of it two, three years ago when it was um, overturned by that Texas federal judge. So I do want to, with you, call the church to put this on a front burner. (laughs) And I think you've done such a great job explaining how the church helped contribute historically to child removal. And so it's like, I I personally kind of feel like the church has this debt or has this uh, repair that it needs to be involved in, given that it was a significant force behind the original harm. Thank you, Sherry. I appreciate that. And um, I look forward to meeting individuals and talking with groups uh, of people who want to be involved in this. Please get involved in the coalition. We are very open and anxious to meet you and to, to help you get involved. Support for this podcast comes from Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. Bethany offers in-person and distance learning options and generous financial aid so that students can answer a call to ministry and service without taking on additional debt. Students choose from a variety of graduate certificates and degrees, including the brand new Master of Arts in Spiritual and Social Transformation, combining faith formation with professional growth. Learn more at bethany.edu slash M-A-S-S-T. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Audio editing was done by Shannon Kaler. And theme music by Micah Peplo and Shannon. Thank you. Thank you.